We're going to be reading this morning from James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good or what benefit is that? So also, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We are so privileged to be able to read your word. Thank you, Father, that your word is now available, at least in part, to the Opo people as well. Thank you for Josh and Jenny who have gone out there to work with others to translate your word into that language. Thank you that we have your word in our language. And Father, there are so many places around the world that have it and so many as Josh has reminded us, that do not. And so we pray, Father, that once again your word may go out powerfully to all parts of the world. We pray right here this morning that as Pastor Paul comes and speaks to us, that you would speak through him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, help us, as your word has told us this morning, to not be hearers only, but to be doers. These things we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As we come to this portion of the book of James, it's an incredibly important 
um, portion of Scripture. Um, it's also a difficult portion of Scripture, and we'll work our way through it, and I hope at the end of it, uh, it will make a little bit more sense to you or give some clarity um, uh, in how you think about faith, saving faith. Faith is a real part of our world, and um, it's a part of our search in life, and there may be some here today that are searching for faith, are wrestling with the realities or issues around faith. And one of the things that James wants to make clear is there are different faiths. There are different ways that you can express your faith, and some of them are erroneous. In fact, there is some incredible danger about looking at faith or thinking about faith in the wrong way. And that's part of what James has been talking to us about and revealing to us is there's a world of deception. There's deception in the church. Uh, there's deception in the world, and there's deception in our own hearts. And we can come to the place where we are thinking wrongly about what faith is and not get it right about what saving faith is. And so there's a question that uh, James will put before us and we'll ask it a few times is, can that faith save you? It's really important that we get that right because this is a text which is driving home to us um, something that is of eternal urgency. It's driving home to us the reality that you can have a faith that will lead you to hell. Or you can have a faith that will lead you into eternal life. And James wants to help us understand that. He wants us to understand that faith is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to have a faith that is a saving faith. That you know that your sins are forgiven. And you know that you're in a good relationship with God. But it's also wonderful to know that you can have a saving faith that changes you. That it doesn't leave you where you are. That it actually gets into your soul. There's a, the seed of God that's planted in you and it transforms you. It transforms the way that you talk. It transforms the way that you act. It transforms the way that you worship. It transforms the way that you treat your spouse. It transforms the way that you treat your parents. It transforms the way that you respond to the word of God. And that is a beautiful faith. And so James is urging us to think carefully about this. To process it and to ask questions about what it is we believe or what our faith is. And I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, what kind of faith saves? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, is my faith a saving faith? Have you ever considered that as we walk through this life, as we've heard from Josh and Jenny? You will hear in the next 20 minutes, and we've already heard more than the Opal people have heard in thousands of years about truth. What will we do with that in our lives? So James asks this question. He begins, and clearly you can see he's talking about different kinds of faith. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? There's a hint of trouble that he makes there, isn't there? Because what he's beginning to say is, okay, there's, there's different kinds of faith. And we go through it, and you, we were introduced to it right there, and that, what good is it? So right there, okay, we're beginning to say, okay, there's a quality of faith, there's a characteristic of faith. And then you go to verse 17, and he talks about a faith that is dead. It's of no use. 
And then he talks about a faith in verse 20, which is useless. It's actually useless. And then in verse 26, again, he talks about a faith that is dead again. Do you understand, loved ones, and if you're searching for faith, how important it is that you think this through. That we understand the difference between faith and saving faith. As I've said, there is no more eternally important question than this question. Am I justified? Is my faith a saving faith? Does it save me from the wrath of God? Does it move me from darkness to light? Does it move me from death to life? Does it move me into a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ? Does it deal with my sins? Does it deal with my need for righteousness? Is that my faith? It matters that we think correctly about this. So the first thing that James launches into as he's talking with this congregation, those that are searching and those that are, that are wrestling with faith, he wants to define for them what faith isn't. And he has two examples that he, he gives us of what faith isn't. And the first one that he talks about is a profession. Faith is not just a profession. Faith that is unsupported by evidence or faith that isn't um, uh, evidenced in a changed life is not a saving faith. And he uses this illustration of a, uh, of a brother or sister that's um, uh, amongst us and he's talking about family now. And he says, listen, right in your own family, you may have somebody who is poorly clothed. That doesn't mean they're in rags, but it means they barely have enough clothes in their closet to keep their family warm and dry through the winter. They barely have enough food in their fridge to fill their stomachs. In fact, they go to bed hungry every night. And so you have a person like that in your, fa in your church and they, they, you're aware of their need and you're talking to them. They might have, you might say, how are you? And they might say, well, you know, it's awfully cold. We don't have coats or, you know, we haven't eaten well for a little while and your response to them is simply oh god bless you be warmed it's almost cruel it's 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 almost there's a sarcasm there it's it's dripping with a form of cruelty and what he what he's getting at is listen a faith that is just a verbal profession is not a saving faith you see we live in a culture today north american culture where there has been, a, I believe, a dangerous, dangerous precedent that has been set. It's the danger that we put out to people and just say the sinner's prayer. Or raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus into your heart and life. Or come to the front of the church and we will pray with you and we will, and as you say that prayer, you are saved. Don't misunderstand me. That is certainly and can be the start of one's life in faith. But if that's where it ends, in just a profession of faith with no evidence, no transformation, no changed life, then what good is it? How does that profession save you? The authenticity of one's faith, the true saving faith, is a transformative faith. Yes, it begins with a profession. It begins with putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
But that is then worked out. It's revealed, it's demonstrated in a life that is marked by works, by obedience. There is fruit that follows saving faith. Some of you may be familiar with the um, uh, account of John the Baptist when he was baptizing people. And people were flooding to him. And it was the thing to do. Oh, I'm going to go to John the Baptist and I'm going to confess my sins and, and uh, I'm going to be baptized. And, and so uh, the religious leaders wanted to get in on this deal. And they too wanted to be part of those that confessed their sins and, and had the show of uh, profession. And so they come and they're baptized. And John the Baptist says to them, Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not just about a, a verbal declaration. It's about a life transformation. The work of God in us as we put our faith in him then is expressed externally. Paul, in another place writing to Timothy, he says to them, The Lord knows those who are his. That those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There's a changed lifestyle. There's a, there's a transformation that proceeds from the declaration of your mouth. And he says it's, the Bible says, and James says, it's evidenced in our good works. So for example, and James may have been thinking about this when Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and he was talking about a light. He says when you have a light, you don't take that light and you put it under a bushel. No, you put it up high so that its light can illuminate the room. And he, 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 he compares that with faith. And Jesus says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house in the same way. Let your light, and I would say, let your faith, shine before others so that they weigh much. See your good works and glorify God. Peter articulated the same reality. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of salvation. We see this transformative work in the early church when they were initially, when the church was born, and so transformative was the work of faith in them that it says, they who had extra pieces of property sold it. And they gave it so that nobody would be, at, would be in need. Everyone had everything in common. There was such a transformation that their faith impacted how they intersected the lives of others around them. The parable or the, that Jesus tells about the end of this age when one of the judgments is described as the judgment of the sheep and the goat's judgment. What is the basis of that judgment? Works. And it's not that works justify us before God, but those works reveal our justification before God. So James sums up his first illustration this way. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's important that we think that through. And if you're searching for faith, Realize that it's just more than a profession. It may start with that, but it doesn't end there. There's a transformation that happens when God changes us from the inside out. As Paul will say in the book of Ephesians, 
For by grace you have been saved by faith, and this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that anyone may boast. And this is where we all, if we're saved, should just stop and rejoice. Wow! God, I, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to change. I don't have to give anything up. You just, by grace and mercy, as I trust Christ, you save me? Oh, there's not a single one of us that ought not to just, for with joy, say thank you. But Paul goes on and he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by works, but our salvation is evidenced in works. So the first faith that he says that is useless and is not saving faith is a profession. The second is what James would call an orthodox faith, or a, a, he would even say a lifeless, lifeless orthodoxy. And he talks there about, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James's point here is that orthodoxy, right thinking, a knowledge of biblical truth in and of itself is not saving faith. Right doctrine will not save you. We don't have a problem with Bible poverty in Parksville. We have a problem with Bible overload, not only in Parksville, but in North America. You see, James gets to this point very quickly because he says to the church there as he's writing to them, um, uh, he says, uh, you do well to believe that God is one. Well, that's, I believe, probably a specific reference to one of the high points of Jewish liturgy or confession, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where almost on a daily basis they would declare the Shema, O Israel, O hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And that is a, an amazing statement of truth. It's an amazing statement of orthodoxy. Yeah, God is one. There is only one God. I believe that. I, I know that to be true. That's what I understand. But James says, listen, that declaration in and of itself does not save you. Thinking rightly about God is not enough. He says, the demons believe that. The demons know that even more clearly than you or I will ever know this side of eternity. And what's the demonic response to orthodoxy? They shudder. There's no change. There's no transformation. There's no impact of that other than a fear. They have a right belief in God, but not a right response to God. You see, what James is saying is, is that if, if, if your faith ends with just thinking the right things, then it's not saving faith. Orthodoxy has to lead to orthopraxy. That is, right thinking has to lead to right living, to a transformation of life. You see, if they move from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, verse 4, to chapter 6, verse 5, then they get it. 
Because after the declaration, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, then Moses says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. It's not an actionless belief. It's a transformative belief. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commands. And James is, is almost harsh. He says, You foolish person. If that's what you think faith is, is just right doctrine, you're a foolish person. And you can tell it's a hard um, word to translate because if you go and look up a number of translations, you'll see them. And these are just four other ones. Um, you shallow person. You ignoramus. I don't think I'd ever thought I'd say ignoramus from a pulpit. But it's actually a, a translation of that word. Or you senseless person. In other words, James wants to, to sort of drive home and say, listen, it's not enough to just think the right things. See, loved ones, we live in an incredible age of opportunity. You have at your fingertips access to some of the greatest preachers ever in the world. In fact, John MacArthur now down in California is documented to be the most prolific author and speaker in history, in Christian history. You have access to preachers galore. You can load up your iPads and your whatever pads and with podcasts that you can listen to 24 hours a day to the end of your life. You and I have access to some of the best systematic theologies, the best books on theology ever. We can so fill our minds with truth and with right doctrine and orthodoxy. But what good is it if we are not doers of the word? You see, if, if, if our orthodoxy doesn't transform us, if it doesn't change our attitude and use of money and possessions, if it doesn't tame our abusive tongue, if it doesn't make us more loving towards our wife or more submissive towards our husband, if it doesn't make us more merciful or forgiving or patient or compassion, if it doesn't take the edge off your temper and in fact get rid of your temper, if it doesn't lead to repentance and worship, if bottom line, if you're not growing in obedience to the word of God, then what good is it? It's useless, James says. We've been talking about God is real, and that's not just an objective thing, which it is true. But if, if your experience of God is real, it will change everything. Saving faith is not a scary thing, loved ones. Saving faith delivers you from a fear of separation from God. It deals with anything that would ever separate you from God. But it also changes you. And it makes you into the likeness of Christ. It's a glorious thing. You've got to get it right, though, about saving faith. So saving faith is not only a profession it's works. Saving faith is not just right thinking. It is transformative in our lives and our behaviors. So what saving faith isn't, it's not a profession. 
And it's not thinking and knowing all the right things. What saving faith is, he demonstrates through the life of Abraham and Rahab. There's some things that I just want to clear up with us. Some, you'll need to on your own, because we're not going to spend a ton of time on Abraham and Rahab. You're going to need to go on your own and read Genesis 15, Genesis 22, Joshua chapter 2 uh, to 6, and find the full story of what he's talking about here, Abraham and Rahab. But what I want to maybe help us do is figure out this justification thing, because he talks about justification, and it's a biblical word. And we always hear, well, you're not justified by works, you're justified by faith. But here he says, no, you're justified by your works. So what is it? First, justification, clarified or defined for us. Justification is a declaration by God. It's a declaration of God over us or to us that we are righteous or perfect in his sight. That all our sins are forgiven. That we have been reckoned righteous or perfect because of Jesus Christ. And that's how God sees us as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that you are experientially perfect. But it means that you are declared perfect or righteous because of your faith in Jesus Christ. The reality of our lives is that we who have been justified are still and often sinners. And that's one of the tensions that we feel as Christians. Because on the one hand, justification is this legal proclamation by God that a man or a woman or a boy or girl who has put their trust in Jesus is now righteous before God. Accepted fully before God. No fear before God. There is no condemnation for that individual. It's like you have a sheet of paper in front of you. And a sheet of paper lists everything that you've ever done. The credit side of that sheet of paper is absolutely blank. You flip it over to the debit side of that paper, your paper, and on that debit side is every failure, every sin, every evil thought, every sinful act, every careless word you have ever spoken or done. Justification is the act whereby God, through the blood of his Son, wipes clean the debit side of that sheet, which is his forgiveness. And and then he shifts us to the credit side, and we find ourselves there credited with the perfection of Christ. His perfect obedience in thought and in intent and in action. That's what it means To be declared righteous. Paul's desire was to gain Christ and to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. But one that depends or comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. Scriptures has many illustrations of this. And Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. But through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified in Christ, not by faith or works of the law, because the works, by the works of law, no one will be justified. So how do we then get to James, where James says you are not justified by faith alone, but by works? Well, let's understand a few things. And first is, to understand Paul and James are not fighting against each other. They've got their backs to each other, and they're 
dealing with two different opponents. The first opponent Paul is taking on. And it's the opponent of legalism. What does a legalist believe? And believe you me, probably every one of us have found ourselves in this camp to one degree or another at some point in our faith. But the legalist believes that acceptance by God, standing righteous before God, is ultimately dependent upon me. My works. That my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That, that I can do a, enough to, to, to come before God and say, well, look, I know I've done a lot of this, but, but I've done a lot of what you required of me. Their hope of standing before God is their personal works. What Paul wants to say is, that is a futile hope. From Paul's point of view, he wants us to understand, well, what kind of person is justified? Well, he says the kind of person that is justified is an ungodly person, not a righteous person. To the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reconciled or reckoned to him as righteousness. You see, he's not someone who by diligent devotion or by zealous religion has built up this great treasury of merit. Nor is he someone who has had great experiences of religion, nor yet again is he one that has kept the law of God. We are ungodly. And it's not simply that we used to be ungodly. He is ungodly because when we come to Christ, we are that way. We are, we are, un, we are ungodly when we are justified. God doesn't wait for us to be done with sin before he absolves us of our guilt. He doesn't even wait till we've conquered it. He justifies us while we are yet ungodly. We know this well, do we not, loved ones? You know that when we want to do good, evil is still present within us. We know that sin has so often licked us and, and all through our life we groan, oh, wretched man that I am. And if we wait to have all of this behind us to be at peace with God, we will wait forever. We'll never have peace. We have to, listen, this is so important. You have to accept peace with God while you are still a sinner. Not with your held, held high with any kind of pride, but with a broken and contrite heart. Because you understand, it doesn't require faith to believe that God justifies a good person. It requires faith to believe that God justifies a sinner. And rooted in that is our peace. That I am saved. Because of the mercy of God and the righteousness of Christ. So the second person is the one that James is taking on. His opponent is, is, is a, a word that, that is called antinomianism. Anti is against, we know that, anti. And nomia is the Greek word for law. So it's one who is against the law. And if, if, you're, if you think yourself above the law, then you're an antinomian. And that happens in Christian circles. See, some people take it to the point of absurdity. If, if I'm not justified by works then, I'm in Paul's camp, I'm not justified by works, and only by faith, then the law is unnecessary. It doesn't matter how I live. 
The imperative scriptures aren't, aren't for me any longer. I'm accepted on the basis of faith alone. But James has already talked about the royal law and the law of liberty and how that still has application to the Christian's life. James's conclusion is that faith alone, the faith alone which justifies a sinner and wipes out his debt and puts us in the credit side under Christ's righteousness, it has a certain quality to it. And it's a quality that produces obedience. It's a quality that's demonstrated in works. And that its longing and its desire is to obey and that will happily and joyfully do things that God commands. And so James's point of view, what kind of person is justified? From Paul's point of view, the kind of person that's justified is ungodly. From James's point of view, the kind of person that is justified is the person that is in Christ. I don't think we as Christians really have thought enough about this about union with Christ. We are, we are the righteousness of God, but only in Christ. There's absolutely no doubt that the idea that God justifies the um, godly carries with it some grave and more mortal spiritual danger. And it's this. That some people will use the grace of God to live a dissolute, irresponsible, sinful life. They would say, well, let's keep on sinning so that grace may abound. If God is glorified in justifying the ungodly, then surely he's more glorified if I'm more ungodly. I'm not sure if there's any logical answer to that. Because whatever we say, it will remain true that God will justify the ungodly. No matter how ungodly one is. That ungodliness is never a fatal barrier to God's gift of justification. And on the other hand, our godliness can never provide a foundation for our justification. So what's the answer? There's a, there's a spiritual defense. James is saying, listen, no one is justified but the one who is in Christ. That's where our faith places us. That's why faith is so important. Because it unites us with Christ. It makes us one with Christ. And that is the only place in the world where a man or woman can be justified. You cannot be justified outside of Christ. But then something follows as a result of that. That, listen, nobody can be in Christ and be merely justified. Union with Christ necessarily transforms us. It makes us new men and women. It channels the life of Christ into our souls. It plants the seed of God's in our heart. There is this instant transformation that takes place. Yes, the moment that we put our faith in Christ, we become new creatures. But then there's this progressive, lifelong transformation as that new life begins to grow and flourish in us. And the divine seed that's planted begins to bear fruit. And we turn towards maturity in Christ Jesus. And, and this transformation, because we're in Christ, is inevitable. And it's not that the renewal is the basis of the ground of our transformation, but only a renewed man or woman in Christ is justified. And so you see what James is saying. The justified person himself cannot say it, and he cannot... He, he, the, oh, I missed it there. 
what James is saying is, is when we are in Christ and we have been justified declaratively by God, that that is then demonstrated in a life that is transformed by the seed of Christ in us. See, what both are saying, and listen carefully, is that faith alone justifies, but it is not a faith which is alone. The point is that good works and obedience to God always follow justifying faith to such a degree that when works follow, we can say that a person is justified by them or is vindicated by them. They demonstrate the declaration of God. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The declaration is worked out in a demonstration of obedience. Jesus says this, and we don't settle here much, but he says, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. This is a great resurrection day. It's this time when Christ will descend, and like he said to Lazarus, he'll say to every human being, come out! And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So this is where James is moving us. He's saying, yes, we are declared righteous when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. But our union with Jesus and our justification that has been declared will be demonstrated by works. And that's where he uses Abraham and Rahab. He couldn't have chosen two more people at opposite ends of the extreme, which is so beautiful. On the one end, we have Abraham, a patriarch, a Chaldean, a man who has been visited by God. On the other hand, we have a prostitute, a Canaanite, a woman who has only heard about God, just a small snippet about God. But what is amazing is that the, the, the saving work of God reaches both extremes. We all need Jesus. And nobody is outside of the reach of the saving work of God in an individual's life. It's an amazing demonstration of faith that justifies. James looks at the point of Abraham and he begins by, by saying Abraham was justified by works. And you think, well, wait a minute. I thought Abraham was justified by faith. Yes and yes. In Genesis 15.6, as, Genesis, as Abraham believes God, it says, and God justified him. His trust in God, his confidence in God, putting all his weight behind God, he was justified. But 30 years later, God says to Abraham something just incredibly difficult. He says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son, your son of promise, the son that you have waited over 25 years for. I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him. Abraham, Abraham gets up early in the morning, no argument, no complaining, walks up. A couple days' journey to Mount Moriah, leaves the servants behind, packs the wood, packs the fire, gets to the place, builds an altar, puts the wood on it, ties his son up. At that moment, God intervenes and provides a sacrifice says to him, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And then listen to this. 
For now I know that you fear God. He was justified by his works. That the, the, the faith that he had in God wasn't just a profession. It was transformative so much so that he fully obeyed God even with that which was most important to him at the time. And it's not that God had to know. God knew what was going on in his heart. But God declared that for us to understand that saving faith is worked out in the demonstration of our obedience to God. And then we have Rahab. What an incredible story about Rahab. Remarkable lady. You say, well, was she justified? Absolutely she was justified. As she trusted in God, God saved her. And you think, well, where, where was she saved? And this is the amazing thing. Sometimes we, we think that salvation involves this incredible amount of knowledge. But you read about Rahab's um, salvation. She had heard, the, the people had heard about what God was doing through the, um, the, the people of Israel as they were coming to take the land and it was causing incredible fear amongst them. They had never seen one so powerful. They had never heard of a God like this. And so as she's recounting to the spies her interaction with all of this, she tells them about what they've heard about God. And then she says these words. She says, for the Lord your God, and this is now, I believe, her expression of faith. He is God in heaven above and on earth below. It's that all of a sudden the penny dropped and says, he's the only God. All our gods are nothing. All our gods don't mean anything. Your God and the God that I believe in now is the God of heaven and earth. And by that profession, she was justified. But the amazing thing, and I think this is what James wants us to see, is it wasn't just a profession it was demonstrated then in her life. How was it demonstrated? She put everything on the line. Her house, her family, her life to protect the two Canaanite spies who are now her brothers and sisters. Or are now her brothers. She demonstrated the outworking of her belief in that God of heaven and earth was worked out in her good works of saving, protecting, and then sending off a different way. And in Rahab's case, her faith also physically saved her. Because when the walls of Jericho fell, only her house was standing and her family was there. And she was saved. And you know the story of Rahab. She finds her way into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Two witnesses, loved ones, who show us what saving faith is. And if you're here and you're, you're, you're searching, this is such a beautiful thing for you to hear, not only what saving faith is, but to look at the life of Abraham and Rahab. You might be a guy like Abraham, a woman like Abraham, really have reputation and money and privilege. That won't save you. Only your faith in Jesus Christ can save. If you are a 
person at the other end of the spectrum, aware of your sinfulness, aware of your ungodliness, aware of your uncleanness, aware that you have nothing to give God, and that you hear about Christ and you say, I will trust him. God will save you. It's a level playing field. Rich and poor all come the same way. Both Abraham and Rahab were declared righteous because of their faith. That's all you need to do. Jesus, I need you. And God will forgive you. He will vindicate you. And he will adopt you as his son or his daughter. Loved ones, this is saving faith. May we find it. May we examine ourselves. May we ask ourselves, is that my faith? Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that saving faith holds nothing back. That saving faith puts everything on the line for you. I pray, Father, for any who are searching and for those of us who are continuing to grow and be transformed, that this word will be helpful. Not a discouragement, but an encouragement to us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.